How would you live, how would you act when you knew exactly how many hours of life you had to live? We think of the person on death row. They know the date of their execution. And what are they given? One final meal. What would you like for your final meal? We think of the person who is counting down the days they see their life ticking away from some disease and they know that their time is short. How do they act? I remember my mom telling me of my grandma Ruth, my dad's mother, who died from colon cancer. And she could not get over the fact, my mom recognizing in, as my grandma Ruth, a wonderfully godly woman, as she got closer to her death, she just wanted to spend more time with the Lord. She just wanted to have her Bible open. She just wanted to be more ready than ever to meet the Lord as she was approaching death. What a wonderful example that is. But what would you, to put a finer point on it, how would you live this week if you knew you had less than 24 hours to live? And I ask you that seriously. I really encourage you for just one moment, if you knew you had less than 24 hours to live, what would your day look like? The last one here on earth. And really, I'm just going to encourage you, if you have a notepad, just start writing. What would your day look like? The last 24 hours you have to live. Go ahead. Think. Right? What would you eat? Who would you spend time with? What would you do? You have less than 24 hours to live. And as you're writing, I'm doing this for a purpose. Because as we come to John 13, Jesus had less than 24 hours to live before he would be crucified for your sins, for my sins. What's more than that is, he knew it. He knew it. And what's remarkable to me about how Jesus spent the last less than 24 hours of his life, at least on this side of his resurrection, is that he spent it in love. In love. Will you look with me at John chapter 13 and verse 1? Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, when Jesus knew that the hour was come, he knew, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What a precious verse of telling us what Jesus was like. I wonder if on your sheet that you were writing down how you would spend the last less than 24 hours of your life, if what was consuming those hours was love for yourself or love to God reflected in love to others. As it could be said of Jesus, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What I want to look at tonight is how Jesus spent these precious last hours of his life, what it tells us about his love, 
But more than anything, in the few verses here in John 13, verses 1 through 3, what it tells us about how you and I can exhibit that same Christ-like service to others in the hours that are passing until our death. The title of the message tonight is The Roots of Christ-like Service. The Roots of Christ-like Service. What is going to be your roots undergirding the tree of your humble service? Just this week, we were having um, uh, our Bible time uh, at the end of dinner, and we were eating out on the porch, uh, and I looked up at our silver maple tree for our children. If you've been to our backyard, you've seen the silver maple tree. It probably was planted around the time our house was built in 1957. So it's probably going on a you know, 60-plus year tree. It is a massive tree. The, the, the circumference of the trunk is probably, I'm just guessing, at least 8 to 10 feet. None of us could wrap our arms around this massive tree. It is going down into the ground. And I told my children, you, the roots that are on that tree that hold that massive structure up and secure probably spread into our neighbor's yards beyond what we could possibly imagine. And I explained to them Psalm chapter 1, that he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his roots and his, that brings forth his fruit in his season. The idea of this massive tree bringing forth, we've got the little helicopter seeds fluttering down all over our yard. The, the fruit of that tree being, um, growing from those roots go, going deep. And what I want to ask you tonight is what are the roots that will undergird your fruitful, loving service for other people? What is going to hold you upright, hold you steadfast in your ability to be fruitful for the kingdom of God in the way you practically love people like Jesus did? You say, well, why should I care about that? Because Jesus told you to. Notice again in chapter 13, he says in verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 14, he said, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. You should do what I have done to you in humble, loving service. So I think we all would agree there. Yes, we should humbly, lovingly serve other people like Jesus did. So what are going to be the roots undergirding that tree in your life? And I want to look at three areas for us here, I think, that we see in Jesus' service that lead ultimately to the roots of that service. The first thing is the reflection of this service, the reflection of this service. The reflection is love. Will you notice with me in, in verse 1 again of chapter 13? When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. You have heard probably preached before on these next five chapters, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 
17. We call John 14 through 16 the upper room discourse. When Jesus is in the upper room teaching his disciples right before he died, the night before he died, these important principles. But if you were to look from John 13 to John 17, ending with his high priestly prayer, the wonderful prayer to his father for his disciples, what is the dominant theme? It's love. A pastor I trust has said, and I, I didn't count it out myself, but maybe you can, the word love is used more in these five chapters than any other word. The theme of the last night of Christ's ministry to his disciples was love. Verse 13, chapter 13 and verse 1 begins, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And then in verse 26 of John 17, he prays, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. These are five chapters overflowing with the love of Christ. Now, I want us to just think about that saying for just one moment that he says here in verse 1. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What would it mean for Jesus to love his disciples unto the end? Now, you, you, you need to understand something about that Greek word that is translated the end. Love them to the end. It can mean this, a, a loving to the end of, of a time. He loved them to the end of his earthly life. And would that be true? He absolutely did. He loved his disciples unto the very last breath he had. But do you know even more so, and I think more touching here, this word to the end actually has the idea of to the completest, to perfection. He loved them to the very fullest. In other words, he didn't just love them to the end in matters of time. That's precious. He loved them to the end in matters of extent, both in time to the end of his life and in extent to the very fullest. And how did Jesus love them to the very fullest? Well, of course, he died for them. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. How did he love them to the fullest on this night, the night before he died in that upper room? Because he took on the posture of a slave. He took off his outer coat, leaving only his undergarment, his thinner undergarment that Jewish men would wear. Why would he do that? Well, he wouldn't want to get his outer garment spotted and stained. This is what you'd do. You'd put aside your suit coat, so to speak, You'd be wearing your undershirt, if you would. You kneel down, and you begin doing what a slave would do in that day. Taking the dirty feet of your disciples, taking a basin of water, and literally humiliating yourself by washing those feet. Of course, Jewish men of that day wore sandals. They were in a hot, arid, desert-like climate. Their feet would be sweaty. Their feet would accumulate the dirt and the mud and the grime of that day. It was a humiliating, denigrating task to be the one who would wash the feet of those who were there. And yet Jesus, being their Lord and their Master, takes on this challenging task and he does it out of love. He loved them 
to the very end. What a wonderful thing about our Savior, that he loves you to the end. He loves you to the end of your life and beyond, if you will, for eternity. He loves you to the very fullest extent. Having loved you, he will love you forever. This is the love of our Savior. But I want you to notice, secondly, something about this love. The reality of this love. The reality of Christ's love in this upper room was costly. We know this in the love that drove him to the cross. It was costly. It cost him his only life. This love was costly too. Do you know, friends, if, if we are going to understand true Christian service for others, we're going to have to understand what it costs. Why is it hard to love other people? It's hard to love other people because it costs something. Do you know your love, what makes your love, your sacrificial love for others costly is two things generally. One is scarcity. It's what you don't have. I don't have time for this. I don't have emotional bandwidth to be able to deal with your problems. I've got enough of mine. To, my, mine. I don't have the bandwidth for that. Mental bandwidth. I can't think through this problem. I can't have this conversation with you. I'm too stressed. I'm too frazzled. I don't have time to have people over for dinner. I can't show hospitality. I can't take the time to make a meal. I can't take the time to clean up afterwards. I'm too busy. It's scarcity. Now think about Jesus for a minute. What scarcity did he have? He had less than 24 hours to live. And how did he spend it? He spent a material part of that time by humbling himself to get down and do the degrading job of washing the feet of his disciples. He took scarcity and didn't use it as an excuse not to love, but instead to lean in deeper in love. He loved them to the end when his time was scarce. Do you know what's more than that? What else makes our love so difficult? Not just scarcity. Human frailty. And I don't mean yours, though we all are frail. I mean the frailty of others. Why is it hard to serve other people? Because serving other people is a lot of times, if you'll forgive the expression, washing their stinky feet. Their feet stink. Their feet are dirty. And for you to serve them, you're going to have to deal with their stinky feet. You say, I don't want to have that person over. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. I don't want to minister to that person. My hands are going to get dirty. I'm going to have to humble myself. Exactly. What made Jesus' love here so overwhelming? Well, will you look with me again in verse number 13? Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Friends, get this. Jesus washed the feet of the guy who would betray him and send him to his death. He washed his feet. What right do we have to say that brother or sister is outside the bounds of my, of my sacrificial love. When Jesus' sacrificial love extended to the guy who was about to betray Jesus to death. What a remarkable thing. He loved them to the uttermost. Even the guy who would betray him. What about the other disciples? 
Surely they were upstanding citizens of the kingdom who deserved this kind of love. Are you kidding me? Luke tells us, do you know what they were arguing about at dinner? Which one was the greatest? They loved that conversation. They loved that topic of conversation. We see it multiple times. And now Jesus, while they're arguing, they've been arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus takes off his outer garment, assumes the posture of a slave, and starts washing their feet. Because they deserved it? Not for a moment. They didn't deserve it at all. You know, friends, how oftentimes we relate to one another in our service of others. And I see this in, in my marriage and in my family, and it's my own flesh. We don't like serving our spouse or our children or our parents because, frankly, we don't think they deserve it. Well, you haven't been very nice to me recently. Why should I get down and humble myself and start serving you? Frankly, they don't deserve it. But you don't deserve it either. You didn't deserve a bit of Jesus' costly, sacrificial love for you. And if you relate to your spouse or to your parents or to your children or to your church members on the basis of their merit... Good luck. Good luck being Christ-like. No. Scarcity is what holds us back from showing this kind of, scare, of, 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 of sacrificial love. I don't have enough. I don't have enough resources, time, energy to do this. Frailty. They don't deserve it. Jesus just destroys both of those excuses. He said, I had less than 24 hours to live. By the way, one other thing. What's amazing to me about Jesus is that he knew he had less than 24 hours. Not only that, listen to, what, listen to what John 18 says. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Knowing all things. Have you ever tried to serve someone else when you are consumed with your own cares and your own anxieties? You know, I've seen a little bit of this recently. Um, you know, probably most of you, that I had a melanoma removed from my shoulder, and so I have to go in every six months now. And it seems like virtually every time I go into the dermatologist now, they chop another something off me. They're just super careful. They're, they don't, they're not going to take any chances. They just chop stuff off. Do you know what ends up happening is they send it for a biopsy. And so just about every time I go in, I have to wait for a week or two to see whether I have another melanoma. You know it's pretty hard when you're just waiting around thinking, wow, do I have cancer again? Do I have cancer? If you've ever been in that situation, or you've ever just been consumed with your own challenges and your own stresses about something happening in the future, try taking your eyes off that and start legitimately, humbly serving someone else. And now imagine Jesus, the weight that he had on him, the weight that rested on him of sin, of within 24 hours, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be hung on a cross with nails driven through me, I'm going to be separated from my Father for the first time in my existence as I become sin for others. And then imagine him laying all of that aside and serving people who didn't deserve it for a minute. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Do you know that same love is still directed toward you today? That kind of sacrificial love, that kind of humble love, that kind of utterly liberated love from concerns about scarcity, from concerns about human frailty. This is the reality of that love. It is costly. It hurts. 
It's messy. It's dirty. And now Jesus points to you and to me, and he says, I've set an example, so do that. Do exactly what I did. Huh. So the question for me tonight is, well, how? I get home from work, and I'm utterly exhausted sometimes, and mentally stressed, and I've got all these things on my mind, and suddenly now I have to start serving my wife and kids before I go to bed? I just want to go back and sit in my room and let my mind rest and relax. What is that? How? How am I going to humble myself? How am I going to love? How am I going to love to the uttermost? Well, this is a point here where I want to suggest to you that we have to read the Bible really carefully. We've got to be real students of the Bible. Because the truth is, there are no words in the Bible that are unnecessary. There's no phrase that God inspired to put in his Bible that you can just safely say, well, I don't need to worry about that one. And I've got one here that I want to hold in front of us. Will you look with me at verse 3? And supper having ended, I'm just reading verse 2 for context, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Now you say, what does verse 3 mean? Do you know, friends, that you could take verse 3 out of it and you wouldn't do anything to the flow of the story? We could look at verse 3 and say, it doesn't need to be there. Why did we need to learn about what was going on in Jesus' head? before he took the posture of a slave and humbly, sacrificially served his disciples in love. Why do we need to know that? Friends, don't overlook that verse. It's telling you something critical. It's telling you what were at the root, what was at the root of Jesus' self-sacrificial love. And I'm going to suggest to you that if this thing is going to be at the root of your self-sacrificing love, okay, let's break that down. John wants to tell us what did Jesus know when he took on this costly love? Look at the first thing he knew. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Do you know what he knew? The first thing he knew was his authority. His authority. Do you remember after Jesus rose from the dead, he said all things? He says everything, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Everything has been given to me of my Father. He knew exactly what his authority was. Now you say, well, why does that matter? Why did it matter to Jesus' sacrificial love that he knew God had given him everything? Do you know why? Do you know there's no scarcity when you are the recipient of everything? Remember what we said holds back? Your sacrificial love to others? I don't have time. I don't have emotional bandwidth. I don't have the ability. I don't have the resources to do it. And now here Jesus is standing here saying, I know everything has been given to me of my Father. I know everything is His, and He's given all to me. All right, disciples, what do you need? There's no scarcity where I'm coming from. You've given everything into my hands. There's no scarcity in Jesus' time. Oh yes, he had less than 24 hours to live. But that wasn't a concern to him. He knew his authority. He knew his security 
in the absolute fullness of God to him. You know, friends, sometimes I think we are way too safe with ourselves. We're way too safe. Sometimes we're way too safe with our time. We're way too safe with our resources. We're way too safe with our money sometimes. And do you know what might be at the root of that inability to love? We just don't trust the fullness of God toward us. We don't trust that He truly has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. I'm not telling you to be a fool in, in the sense of being a, a, a reckless person in violation of scriptural principle. What I am saying is this. Do we trust God or not? Do we trust Him? Listen to the way Paul thought. If you want to think about a Christ-like way to think, in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, Paul says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Paul said, I've got nothing. But on the other hand, I don't have any scarcity. I actually have everything. I have all things. That's why I can live the way that I do. What would it look like? For us to have that, that absolute root in confidence in God to know I have everything I need and therefore scarcity alone won't hold me back from sacrificially loving others. It was his security in who God was and what he had done for him, what he had given him. But notice not what else did he know. Not only did he know that the Father had given all things into his hands, he also knew that he was come from God and went to God. You say, why did we need to know that? Jesus not only was aware, not only knew his authority and his security, he knew his identity. He knew his identity. He knew he came from God. And he knew he was going to God. He was utterly secure in his identity before God. You say, well, why does that matter? Because remember what we talked about, the other thing that held us back from sacrificial love? Not just scarcity, but human frailty. He was utterly secure in his relationship with God. He was utterly secure in who he was and what God had sent him to do. That's why he was secure in his priority. You see, when you and I, if we think about the very few amount of time we have left we're likely to begin trying to spend it on ourselves. We talked about this this morning. In light of the resurrection, we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. You see, all over people are preparing to die, as we said this morning. They're preparing to die. You see, in what way? They know their time is short, and so what's their reaction? Life is an orange, and I'm going to try to squeeze as much juice out of it before it's gone, before it's, it, before it's extinct. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die. And so we spend it on ourselves. And then you see Jesus. And he was preparing to live. He was utterly secure in his eternal identity with God, in his relationship to God. And that meant, meant you know what? The time that I have left shouldn't be spent on myself. My time left should be spent on others. It should be spend, spent loving on those who I am to love to the very fullest. His identity created his priority. Do you know another example of this that we see in the Bible is the Apostle Paul? I love this. 
Philippians chapter 1, a book that is focused on joy in the midst of suffering. Joy and suffering. Joy and difficulty. Joy and trial. And here's what Paul says. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. I don't know. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He knew where he was going. He was going to Christ. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. You know what that tells me of Paul? He was utterly free. He was utterly liberated. He knew his identity. It was in Christ. He knew his priority to minister to others, to be a messenger of the gospel, to be utterly committed. And it made him completely joyful in the ability to spend and be spent for other people. I know where I'm going. I know what my calling is. I know what my priority is. Here, let me lay aside my coat. Let me get down and get dirty in serving other people. You see, people who live in light of the resurrection of Christ who live for eternity, are those who are utterly free. They're utterly liberated. They know exactly where they're going. Jesus knew his, his authority from God, his security in God. He knew his identity with God. And therefore, he was utterly liberated to live out his priority from God. You know, I think about like this. I think a little bit about our ability to serve other people as being a little bit like a harness. These are the roots of love that allow us to be more bold and more liberated. Imagine for a minute that you saw a car go off the roadway and into the river that was running right by the road. And you ran up and you were ready to jump in and you were ready to try to grab people out of that river, and yet you knew you couldn't swim well. How easy would it be to exercise that kind of costly love to dive in? It'd probably be quite challenging. You probably might be wading in. You might not be diving in fully. But what would that do to you if you had a harness? You were hooked into a harness. You were hooked to something that always had the power to pull you out. I bet you'd be a much bigger risk taker. I bet you'd be much more bold. I bet you'd be much more liberated in going and diving into the water, knowing that you were secure, knowing that you were harnessed, knowing that ultimately you were safe. And what I want to suggest to you tonight is that this kind of thing that Jesus knew here is your harness, it's your faith, it's your conviction. That your identity is secure in God. That, that means that your scarcity is not ultimately the final conclusion about whether you think you have enough time or whether you think you have enough emotional bandwidth or whether you think you have enough mental resources to give. You know your priority. Your priority is here to love other people, to point people toward Christ, to disciple them in their walk. You're secure you're liberated. You know who you are in Christ. You know the sufficiency that you have in him. And therefore, you are secure 
in your priority for him. I love it. I love it. Friends, we have to realize if we want to love other people like Jesus did, it's going to cost. It's going to cost a lot. And yet when we have our harness, when we have our roots, when our tree is secure in the ground in our knowledge about who God is to us, who Jesus is for us, and what he has called from us, we're able to show the same kind of humble, self-sacrificing love that Jesus did. Fifteen years ago, last April, one of the most significant acts of heroism in our armed forces was accomplished. It was in Iraq. It was in outside a military base in Iraq where Marines were stationed along with Iraqi policemen. Two men from the US military were on guard one of them was a 21-year-old named Corporal Jonathan Yale. Another was a 19-year-old Lance Corporal named Jordan Herder. And in Ramadi, one early morning, April 22, 2008, a 20-foot-long truck turned down the street where there was a serpentine maze to get to that base. And they quickly knew that something wasn't right because that truck began accelerating down that serpentine kind of maze. The Iraqi policemen that were there fled. They knew what was there. This 21-year-old corporal, this 19-year-old Lance Corporal, pulled out their machine guns and began firing. Sleeping behind them were upwards of 50 Marines and Iraqi policemen. That truck continued operating, continued working across the serpentine maze as those men continued to stand and fire until it came to rest, I guess a, a couple dozen or a few dozen feet from them, and the bomb detonated, the explosives in that 20-foot-long truck. It created a divot in the ground five foot deep and 20 feet wide. That much explosive was packed into that bomb. Marines were injured apparently more than a hundred feet away at the size of the explosive. Those two men died. But none of the 50 Marines and Iraqi policemen behind them died. In six seconds that truck was coming the 60 meters toward them. These two men had six seconds to live. And they stood their ground while the other Iraqi policemen ran and, and saved themselves. These two men, protecting the base behind them, brought that truck to a halt. The head of the Marines, John Kelly, a man probably some of you knew over the last, heard of over the last several years, personally went to interview the people that stood, uh, that, that were witnesses to this event. And here's what was recorded, one of the eyewitnesses. Choking past the emotion, he said, Sir, in the name of God, no sane man would have stood there and done what they did. 
John Kelly wrote this, by all reports and by the recording, they actually recovered a security footage of what had happened. And it was reviewed. John Kelly, I believe, reviewed it personally. By the recording, he says, they never stepped back. They never even started to step aside. They never even shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder-width apart, they leaned into the danger, firing as fast as they could work their weapons. And the two of them went into eternity. You say, what would cause two young Marines with so much to live for, one of them was scheduled to go home in just days? What would cause those men to stand there like they did? Here's what John Kelly wrote. He said, they took seriously the duties and responsibilities of a Marine on post and stood their ground before they would allow anyone or anything to pass. For their dedication, they lost their lives. Because what they did, what they did, only two families had their hearts broken on 22 April, rather than as many as 50. These families will never know how truly close they came to a knock on the door that night. They took their duty, took seriously the duties and responsibilities of a Marine on post. Friends, you may never have six seconds to live like that when it will be put to the test how seriously you take your duties and responsibilities. But I will say this. You are called to live in the same kind of self-sacrificing manner by the example and the command of Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives like that corporal and that vice, that lance corporal loved the men at the base behind them. Christians, love one another. What's going to be your security? What's going to be your halter? What's going to be your harness that's going to allow you to take the kind of costly, self-sacrificing love that Jesus displayed toward us? May it be your knowledge of who God is to you, what Christ has done for you, and what priority he's put in front of you.